Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 314 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers Centre, where you'll find writing courses, useful resources, and an awesome, supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Macmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Al? Where are you, Al? There's no Al this week. Okay. Actually, I'm not here with Al because Al is on holidays. I am here. You might hear my cat, Rocky, in the background. He probably wants to sleep, but uh, he's keeping me company as I am recording this solo. No, Al, for the first time in my life, first time in history, but everyone needs a break, right? So, the lovely Alison Tate is off with her family doing a Griswold's family vacation all over the place. And, uh, and from her Facebook posts, it sounds like she's having a lot of fun. So she will be back next week. But in the meantime, you have me and uh, no one else for the first time. This is really quite bizarre. But I want to give a big shout out to Tanya from Denmark. Tanya was kind enough to leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And she has said, Dear Al and Val, thank you for this powerful podcast. I listen on my morning walks in the mountains in Tbilisi. I don't think I've pronounced that right, but it's somewhere in Denmark. You give me inspiration for writing my book about my life as an expat and traveler here in the Caucasus. I truly enjoy your knowledge sharing spiced with humorous honesty from the heart. All the best, Tanya in Tbilisi. <laughs> I completely butchered that destination to that, that town. Thank you so much, Tanya, for taking the time to leave us, for leaving us a review on iTunes. Really, really grateful. Um, and if anyone else does have uh, 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we would be really grateful because it helps us in the rankings and helps us bring this podcast to more people because we love sharing our love of writing and um, some words of wisdom here and there. And also, also sharing with you some of the fantastic conversations that we have with um, authors from around the world. Now, it's a pretty difficult time in Australia at the moment with all of the fires and um, all of the devastation that's going on to homes and um, humans and wildlife. And so um, I hope that wherever you are, you are staying safe. I hope that wherever you are, you are looking after yourself and keeping your spirits up. It's very easy to get um, to, to get down, especially with so much going on in social media and the news about all the terrible things that are happening. And um, I mentioned this to my uh, freelance writing masterclass program members because we held a Facebook Live earlier tonight, when earlier um, when than this recording. And one of the things that I mentioned to them was that it is so easy to really get affected in a negative way um, by all of the news. And I think that it's really important to acknowledge what's happening and to feel it and absorb it and understand what's going on and be informed, of course. But sometimes if you are, if it's really affecting you, my strong encouragement is to 
If you can, take a break from social media, take a break from reading too much of the news just for a little while so you can recalibrate and you can get out of any funk that you might be in. This doesn't affect everyone, of course, but I certainly know that it was affecting me and I had to kind of just stop for a bit and not read the news. I've, I've come back to it and I'm now informed again, but I needed that break and I encourage you guys that if you need that break as well um, to, to do that. I want to give a big shout out to anyone who participated in the hashtag Authors for Fireys. If you've missed that, it was a wonderful initiative that um, was spearheaded by a couple of authors and, and embraced by many authors all around Australia who donated everything from, you know, signed copies of books to lunch or dinner with them to mentoring sessions to manuscript assessments and so on. Um and it was a great initiative because it was an auction and you could, uh, people could bid for that particular prize and all of that money um, would go to various um, rural fire services or, or wildlife services, um, services that are going to, that are going to help people impacted by, by the fires. And, um, the, the winning bidder had to directly donate and show the receipt to the author who would then be, who would then send out the prize. So for anyone who participated in that, if you bid and if, and whether or not you were successful, thank you for participating. I know that there are some people who have bid for courses that we, that we donated. Um, including the Fiction Essentials course and the uh, Writing Picture Books course, and they were done through uh, that, that. The word was spread for that um, with the with uh, Judith Russell and uh, with Pamela Freeman. So thank you to those authors as well for participating. Um, now, what's been happening in the world of writing and publishing? Well. <laughs> Before Christmas, I was very amused to read that um, the <laughs> the founder of the Apostrophe Protection Society had given up. <laughs> so John Richards was a former sub-editor and he's uh, now 96 years old, but he says that he has admit, um, admitted defeat. He said the ignorance and laziness present in modern times have won. <laughs> and he wrote that on the Apostrophe Protection Society's website. And he was saying that there's been such a lack of interest in correct apostrophe usage that he's shutting down the group. But of course, the moment that he said that, his website traffic spiked and everyone is interested in his unusual little society. And one of, one of the things that he used to do with the Apostrophe Protection Society, which he founded in 2001, to, you know, preserve the correct use of the apostrophe. He created a form letter that could then be customized to be sent to offending businesses, telling them that, you know, they had the apostrophe misplaced or overused or not used at all in various signs in their establishment. And he would say, dear sir or madam, because there seems to be some doubt about the use of the apostrophe, we are taking the liberty of drawing your attention to an incorrect use. <laughs> so initially, the society only had two members. That was um, John Richards and also his, his son, Stephen. But eventually, more people uh, became interested. 
and he he would he says that um it took a long time before anyone would actually respond to his letters but eventually he get he got some businesses that would correct their signs so I think that's really cute that he has uh, he, he started the Apostrophe Protection Society at 96. I hope that he keeps going with it. Um, if he doesn't, I'm sure there's a few listeners, myself included, who wouldn't mind taking it over if he wanted to hand over the reins of the Apostrophe Protection Society because, you know, I love my apostrophes. Anyway, what else has been happening? Okay, so, oh, I have been writing up a storm, but writing something different. Some of you may know that I am the City of Sydney's curator for the Sydney Lunar Festival, which goes from the 25th of January to the 9th of February. And there are activities all around the city, including exhibitions and performances and um, giant art installations and lion dances and uh, artist talks and demonstrations um, and all sorts of things. And um, I'm been oh in I'm in the lead up preparation to that, and actually I've been doing a lot of writing, so I've had to write signage, I've had to write speeches, I've had to write um, oh, content, and so it's been it's I've been head down bum up writing, writing, and writing some more. Um, I guess it's a combination of content writing and freelance writing, feature writing, and also copywriting. And it's been really good because it's a it's a um, project that I'm really passionate about. We're expecting 1.5 million people attending the festival this year, and I hope that you can make it too if you are in Sydney. One of the things that I did, though, to, to make sure, you know, many people will know, and if for those of you who've read um, the book written by myself and Alison, we believe in taking yourself out on a creative date. So even when you're busy, when, even though I am flat out with this lead up to the festival, um, I do make sure that I try to take myself out on a creative date. And that's what I did on the weekend. And I went to um, quite a number of art galleries and also the Powerhouse Museum and checked out um, the exhibitions there. And it's fascinating just to just fill your well again. Because, you know, even if you're a writer, you don't necessarily have to go to a writer's talk. You can do something else because sometimes when you go to something that is a little bit out of your wheelhouse, a little bit out of your frame of reference, you can get a whole heap of ideas because whatever you're experiencing can spark, you know, your the synapses in your brain connecting potentially in a different way. So I encourage you to go out on a creative date. I went out to... White Rabbit Gallery. Um, I went to a new gallery in, um, uh, I don't know where it is, oh, in Piermont called the Audrey Art Gallery. I went to the museum, as I mentioned. I went to Artshine Gallery. Uh, it's it's really worthwhile to, to take the time out and, and feed your creative soul with whatever it is that works for you. Okay, let's move on to the competition this week. The competition this week is you get a chance to win one of three copies of That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and The Amazing Life of an Idea by Mark Randolph. Once upon a time, brick and mortar video stores were king, late fees were ubiquitous, video streaming was unheard of, and widespread DVD adoption seemed about as imminent as flying cars. Indeed, these were the laws of the land in 1997 when Mark Randolph had an idea. 
It was a simple thought, leveraging the internet to rent movies, and was just one of the many proposals that Randolph would pitch to his business partner, Reed Hastings, on their commute to work each morning. But Hastings was intrigued, and the pair with Hastings as the primary investor and Randolph as the CEO founded a company. Now, with over 150 million subscribers, and yes, I'm one of them, Netflix's triumph feels inevitable, but the 21st century's most disruptive start began with a few believers and calamity at every turn. So it's the story of Netflix, which it's absolutely fascinating to see how the entire industry has been turned on its head and completely disrupted. Technology has been changing so quickly, even just when in my visit um, on the weekend to the Powerhouse Museum, looking at the the, the, the computers and that back from the Apple IIe, gosh, remember the Apple IIe? I had that. Um, I remember the fax machine. I remember when we had a telex machine. I mean, that's just insane now. And these days, it's it's all in the palm of your hand with the phone. Um, I guess I'm showing my age. Anyway, if you want to win one of three copies of That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea by Mark Randolph, go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 20th of January. And even if you're listening to this podcast in the future, um, that's okay. Go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions because there will be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. Now, this is where I'm completely at a loss because this is the usual time I ask Al if she's ready for the word of the week, but she's not here. So, Rocky, the cat, Rocky, he's not even paying me any attention. He's completely asleep, dead to the world sounder. So I can't even ask him if he's ready for the word of the week. All right. So I'm just going to tell you guys, the word of the week is depredation. D-E-P-R-E-D-A-T-I-O-N. Depredation. So I read this in Tony Jones's book, In Darkness Visible, because we talked to Tony last week in last week's episode. His phrase was that the character was responsible for the depredations of an Eustacia-style militia in Bosnia. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, depredation means a preying upon or plundering, robbery or ravage. There you go, depredation. So try using depredation in a sentence this week and, um, and let me know how you use it. I'd love to hear. So now we're going to move on to this week's writer in residence. This is such a cool one. Uh, I spoke to Nick Gadd. Now, Nick Gadd is a Melbourne writer. He writes essays about a whole range of topics, um, Melbourne, history, literature, and so on. He's uh, had a novel called Ghost Lines, and uh, his second novel is Death of a Typographer, which has been published, um, which has recently been published. And it's absolutely intriguing and different, and I just think it's a cracker. So I'll let Nick tell you all about it. Let's have a listen to Nick Gadd. Thanks for joining us, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on your book, Death of a Typographer. Now, the minute... 
I heard about this book. I thought this is so intriguing and I had to talk to you. Now, for some listeners who are not yet familiar with the book, can you tell them a little bit of what it's about? Sure. So this is um, a mystery novel, I guess you would describe it as a mystery novel, which centers on fonts and uh, typography. And the, the main character is um, an investigator, Martin Kern, who's a sensitive to fonts, and he uses his uh, special powers to, uh, to assist the police to solve crime, especially type crime. And um, that's the main plot of the novel, um, in which he, uh, he investigates a series, he and his co-investigator, Lucy, investigate a series of murders, and uh, they discover that the trails lead back to a, uh, a Dutch design genius called Peter van Flugstraten, who's been working for years on this mystical project to create the world's most perfect font. And so also in the novel, we, uh, we get the backstory of uh, Flugstraten and find out just what's been going on with him and what his project actually is and how, if at all, he is connected to these murders which are happening. Now, you've mentioned that he investigates type crime. So can you just give readers a bit of an insight into what type crime is? Yeah, sure. Well, a type crime is any kind of crime that involves type or letter forms. Um, so, for example, that might involve some a kidnapping with somebody sending a ransom note with letters cut out of um, a newspaper. Or it uh, could involve, let's see, um, I mean, a real-life example of type crime involves uh, documents which are, are typed in a particular font, for example. Like there was a case a few years ago where there was um, a senior politician, not in this country, in another country, who was involved in the Panama Papers case and um, attempted to clear his name by saying, look, here's a document that proves I am not connected with this dodgy business deal. And then it became, and the document was dated 2008, but then somebody noted that the font in this document was... Mm. Um, only created in 2009. So uh, the presumably that and the document was forged. So that's an example of how type could be used um, in, um, in resolving a criminal matter. Now, I have to ask, I mean, obviously you're a writer, you have written, you know, quite, for quite a number of outlets before, but I have to ask, have you always been obsessed with type and fonts? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Um, really? This, um, this came about I became friends with um, a fellow called Stephen Bannum, who's a, a type designer and a graphic designer. And we've worked together on various things over the years. And Stephen is a great expert on fonts and type. And he started um, talking to me a number of years ago about, about this. And I became really interested in the, the language of it. Mm. The fact that type has its own, its own kind of secret language about glyphs and swashes and ligatures and all this stuff. And also um, that it attracts some quite obsessive kind of personalities. So people who are really obsessed with yeah. letter forms. And these people really do exist. You know, <laughs> and um, they kind of they live and breathe for typography and they become really, um, really obsessed with things like the shape of the dot over an eye, for example, you know, which is, it's called a tittle, by the way, that's another, <laughs> another piece of language. Who knew that the dot over an eye had a, a, its own name, but it yes. does. So in these conversations with Stephen over the years, I, I 
became interested in type and fonts. And at a certain point, I started thinking, oh, well, I'm a writer, I'm a fiction writer, I should do something with all of this. So that was really the start of it. And, um, and then I started doing my own research and reading and just became sucked down this rabbit hole of typography and discovered, yeah, it's a truly fascinating world. And so that was the start of it for me. So I wouldn't call myself, I'm certainly not an expert on fonts and um, I, I'm not really obsessed with them either, but I'm, uh, I'm foremost a, a writer, so I know enough about that subject to, to use it imaginatively and uh, that's what I've tried to do. So this novel is very, um, it's set in this world where typography is such, plays such a big part in so many aspects of it because, you know, you've, you've got um, scenarios with a printer, you've got uh, the, the actual um, protagonist who is, whose name is Kern. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, what made you think of this premise, how in the world did this get come into your brain? Golly, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's know. so bizarre. It's, it's so bizarre, and yet it works fantastically. But it's how in the world did it did did this idea come to you? Well, I suppose because I because there really are people a bit like that. Um, <laughs> so for. For a start, I thought, well, you know, this whole um, business of uh, using fonts as a way of solving mysteries is pretty interesting. The fact that you can look at a piece of typography and it can tell you some things about the writer and about the, the document and about its history and what it's trying to communicate, that's all pretty interesting. And then the fact that the world of typography um, is genuinely full of these people who are really quite obsessive like there was a fellow for example and this is in not in my book this is in real life there was a fellow who spent his life traveling the world taking photographs of letter forms as they appeared on the wings of butterflies oh my right God. <laughs> and until he had accumulated the entire alphabet and he had to go kind of deep into the jungles of the amazon to do it and it took him many many years until eventually he found uh, the butterflies who had all the letters of the alphabet and um and all the numbers as well and you, you can you can google it um his name was kiel sandved and um, you can buy posters of the uh, the butterfly alphabet and so forth so i thought well if there are people like this um in the world who are so obsessed with letter forms then um to invent this character my character flugstraten who's uh, ambition is to create the world's most perfect font, which he then conceals, creates letter forms and conceals it in different places around the world. Well, that's not really so far-fetched at all. It's uh, just a kind of quest for perfection, but in a in a different way. And so once I'd come up with uh, this idea of um, using fonts to solve mysteries, which is the kind of Martin and Lucy part of the plot, and then trying to create the world's most perfect font, which is the Flugstraten part of the, uh, of the plot, and then it was a case of... Uh, figuring out ways to <laughs> to resolve those two things and bring them together. And it all comes together in the end, hopefully. So can you give me just a vague, you don't have to be super accurate, but some kind of timeline of the gestation period of this from idea to draft to, you know, um, getting a publisher interested to edits to publication? I, I'm not interested in... How long this took? Yeah, well, it was quite—it was quite an interesting process actually, because like I originally had the idea um, in about two thousand and 
14. And, um, and I thought, oh, I'd, I'd like to write something about fonts and type. But I wasn't sure that it, there was a whole novel in it. So uh, the, at first I wrote a short version, uh, which was about 20,000 words long. And I entered this in a novella competition. And it was a finalist in the novella competition. And I wrote, and I wrote that pretty quickly. I wrote it in about three months, and it was 20,000 words. And that had the, the basic story arc in it, but, but uh, not a lot of the, the international chapters were not there, but the basic story arc was there. And, um, and when it was a finalist in the competition, I thought, oh, well, there may be a real novel in this. Maybe it could be a full novel in this. And, but then I didn't do anything with it for a couple of years. And then I, because I was working on other things, and then I came back to it and thought, right, now I'm going to turn it into a full novel. So I'd had a couple more years to kind of think about it and think about how I could do that. And then I wrote the whole novel. In, it's about 100,000 words. And I wrote that in probably around 18 months. And working fairly fast and got faster as it went on. And, um, and then I did some work with uh, Nick Earls, who mentored me, and he, um, he read the, the, uh, my draft and gave me some feedback on it. And so then there was a stage of um, doing some, a bit of reworking. Mm. But then it was, pretty much, it was pretty much done and ready for submission to, to publishers. So that was, that was the process. Wow. And after that, it didn't, the, the editing process didn't really take very long at all. It was, um, it was pretty much there at that point. So you're, you've written a mystery, which obviously means that everything really needs to ultimately fit together and make sense and um, it, it, the, and be believable. Did you plot that out so you knew what was going to happen or did you just kind of write and hope that it was going to go somewhere? Um, well, I did have the, the basic story out pretty much worked out in my head um, and on paper. And I did plot it out reasonably carefully, but then I did also want to leave room for kind of new characters to appear and for things to evolve. Mm. And for, and I wanted to be able to have some fun with it as well. And I I also find that I tend to write in, in blocks of about 3,000 words, like my chapters tend to be about 3,000 words long. And that's just kind of natural length I gravitate towards in my previous book as well. So most of the chapters in this book are of that length, but then there are five longer ones. And um, I decided I wanted to have 26 chapters, and uh, that's, <laughs> not, that's, not, that's not a coincidental number. And, um, and I wanted to have five chapters which were kind of the backstory set in different parts of the world. And so I would have three chapters or four chapters and then three of the shorter chapters and then a longer chapter, and then three of the shorter chapters and then a longer chapter. Uh, so that was the, the structure of it. So you get the, the main narrative unfolding in the shorter chapters and then every few chapters you get one of the longer ones which is in a different part of the world. So um, in a Tibetan, there's a chapter in a Tibetan monastery, a chapter in Peru, one in Naples, one in Amsterdam and one in London. Those are the four longer chapters and then the main narrative unfolds in Melbourne. Mm. And so when you were writing it over your 18 months, um, did you have and you said you, you've written in 3,000-word-ish chunks. Did you have some kind of – did you give yourself that timeline and did you kind of have a goal, like a certain number of word count to achieve in a certain period? How did you structure the the discipline of getting it out? Yeah, look, I, I, 
it was totally like the discipline was totally self-imposed. I didn't have a publisher in place or anything. I was just purely writing it for my own um, my own pleasure, really. Mm. And I I gave myself um, the target of uh, I'm going to try and write one of the shorter chapters every two weeks, right? So a 3,000 word chapter in two weeks, and uh, the longer ones would take a bit longer than that, about you know a month or so, and. Um, and that was the, and then I just kind of worked my way through the chapters. I had it, I had the architecture all plotted out and I had the kind of the rules worked out and I had a, a pretty clear idea of, of where, what had to go in each chapter. Um, and uh, yeah, and then that was the way I approached it. And I found I was able to pretty much stick to that. And then I got to the stage where the only part I had left to write was the Amsterdam chapter, uh, which is not the final chapter, but that was the, the last one that I wrote, and I wrote, I finished that. I went up to um, the Varuna mm-hmm. um, in in the early in 2018 for two weeks, and I set myself the target. Right, I'm going to write the Amsterdam chapter, and then I went up there and I wrote that in that two weeks, and uh, and then that was the end of that draft. And just on a practical level, just so that people can understand, were you working at the time, like, or did you do this full time, or what were you combining it with, and how? Give us some an idea of, say, your day, a typical day. Um, yeah, well, while you were yeah. writing, yeah. I I have a full time job, um, so most of the writing was done early in the mornings. So I'd go up in the morning and write, and um, then in the Sometimes at lunchtime, I would go off to the State Library of Victoria and sit in the typography section and do some writing there. I'll go there after work and sit there near the type books and let them speak to me and <laughs> commune with them. And, uh, and then at, at weekends, of course, I had a bit more time. I was able to put a few more hours in, but I certainly wasn't doing this full time. I was kind of seizing bits of time where I could. Mm. And so, you see, when I asked you if you were obsessed with fonts or typography and you said not really, find that so surprising and almost hard to believe because uh, I'm wondering, I mean, are you now? Because (laughs) this book is just so full of references, not that that detracts from it in any way. Um, It flows very, very well, but it has so many things, so many references in it to fonts and typography. So are you obsessed now? Oh, look, uh, I probably wouldn't say obsessed. I'm also, I don't want to claim kind of a level of knowledge which I don't have because the um, the people who really are experts on this stuff really, really do know a huge amount more than me. But, yeah, look, I really am interested in it. And I've got, like, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of research. The research for this mm. book, I must say, was such fun um, because there are some really good books out there about fonts and typography and it just it's like discovering this world that you yes. didn't really know existed i mean that's one of the things i really love about it is the fact that all the type is around us and i'm using type in the sense of like all letter forms are around us all the time communicating all this kind of stuff and we often don't you don't really think about it until you do and then <laughs> you can't stop thinking about it you can't stop looking at it and thinking hmm why does that baker's shop use that kind of handwriting kind of style you know and yes. why does uh, why does this pharmacy use this kind of stencil kind of lettering you know because that suggests sort of kind of cheap and cheerful you know yeah. whereas this cafe that i'm in now has got uh, this this elegant lettering you know on its um 
which suggests a certain kind of sophistication here. And this wine bottle, you know, why does why do they use this kind of lettering? You know, the lettering that they've got on the wine bottle would look totally wrong on the cheap pharmacy, you know, and and vice versa. So what is it saying to us? You know, it's communicating this kind of stuff. And I, um, with the, in the book, you you will have noticed like we had quite a bit of fun with this. We used a lot of different fonts in the uh, in the book. Um, in each chapter is introduced by a title page which has uh, a different font on it, uh, and the title is in a different font, and we're trying to communicate there something to do with the story. So, um, you know, if you want to look at all those fonts, and they're all listed at the back, and, and figure out how does that connect to the story, then there's a, you know, a level of uh, fun there in doing that. And, um, or you can just look at them and appreciate them, just enjoy them, you know, you don't, you, know, you don't have to be a font expert to enjoy this book at no, all. No, not at all, not um, at all. Mm. And so when, you see, what I found myself doing more towards the start was I, I, I'd be reading something and it was fascinating and I had to go, go Google it to see if it was true, you know, whether the story <laughs> was true or whether that really is a font or, or whatever, right? So I had my iPad there. And after doing that for quite a period of time, I actually had to stop myself because I really wanted to, you know, <laughs> read it normally. But the point of that is that there were so many references interwoven. What I'm interested to know is, did you go off and do your research and think, oh, that's really an interesting story. I'm going to file that away. Oh, that's an interesting bit of trivia. I'm going to file away and then weave them in. Or were you writing and in the process of writing, you thought, oh, I should get a story, a, a, a font that's like a story about a font like this and then research it. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, it's probably a little bit of both, you know, like, I mean, I would be reading a book about typography and some story would come up, like, for example, about um, the one about Carlo Guidi, who was an mm. Italian poet of the 18th century. This oh. is possibly one of the things that you Googled. <laughs> and um, and this is a true story that he, he was about to um, present his book of poetry to the Pope and he traveled across Italy, you know, on horseback to do so. And then he got to basically to the door of the Vatican and he spotted a typographical error in the book and the poor man dropped dead on the spot, you know, because, <laughs> which is you know, terrible for him. But it kind of reveals the uh, the um, the fact that people really take type seriously. So when uh, when I wanted to kind of create this my character and Martin is so sensitive to fonts that if he sees a really bad piece of typography, he gets a migraine. Yes. And so I um, and that's kind of, that's part of the uh, the premise of his character. So when he's explaining this, he says to Lucy, "Look, some people take type seriously." He tells the story of Carlo Guidi. So it's a way of getting the reader into that world of uh, of really really serious people who really yes. care about type. Um, <laughs> and and then you know the. the Sometimes I would come across a story that I think I just have to include that, and then other times um, things would just occur to me and would be worked into the uh, into the plot more quite organically. And then, of course, there's also the stuff that I just invented, which, uh, yeah. like, I mean, some people have told me they've been Googling Luke Stratton, for example, yes. to see was he real, you know, but no, he wasn't. He wasn't. But I made him up. But there are people like that, you know. Yes. <laughs> so, there are people even more crazy than him. Like once, uh, you know, once you've found out. How, how nuts some of the people are in the world of typography, then, uh, you know, my characters are really quite quite balanced and sane. <laughs> <laughs> so are you working on your next novel now? Um, I'm working – my next book is going to be a non-fiction book, which is uh, called Melbourne Circle, which is about um, walking in Melbourne and psychogeography, uh, which has been another big interest of mine. I've, 
wrote a blog called Melbourne Circle mm. for a number of years, which was about walking in the suburbs and looking at things like old signage and lost places and things like that. So it does kind of over, there's a little bit of overlap mm. with uh, with the themes of the novel. Um, but I um, and then once that's delivered to my publisher, then I'll start thinking about a new novel. Yes, I'm wondering whether mm. it would be like this is kind of a genre all its own. You know what I mean? I'm wondering whether you'll pick another um, topic to really delve into and and and, and write a novel, uh, you know, about. Um, not yeah, about, maybe. You know, <laughs> based in that world kind of thing. Um, I think. That yeah, that would look, be I, fascinating. I think that. Well, um, yes. I mean, this novel does include a lot of things which do fascinate me. Also, I think in a way and that was kind of one of the drawbacks in terms of pitching it to publishers is the fact that it's quite hard to classify um, like, because this is a multi-generic novel. Um, so it, it's, it's not just a crime novel. It's, uh, there are certainly elements of crime in it. It's not just a comic novel, although there's plenty of humor in it. You know, the, there are places where I'm sort of having fun. There's a bit of sort of parody, a bit of pastiche, mm. you know, there's, um, there's lots of jokes. There's chapters that set in different parts of the world. There's a, you know, a little bit of supernatural going on in, in some parts of the plot. And so it's quite multi-generic and mm. it's difficult to explain that to publishers. And when I was trying to find a publisher for this book, I think a lot of them were kind of turned off by that because a lot of publishers like something which is quite easy to market, you know, which is quite mm. easy for them to pigeonhole and say, right, this is rural crime, you know, everybody mm. knows what that is, you know, or, or this is a psychological thriller, everybody knows what that is. But then they'd look at this and go, well, we don't know what this is, you know. Mm. I'd say, well, it's, it's a novel, you know, it's entertaining, it's, it's fiction. <laughs> and, um, and uh, but... I think sometimes if you're doing something that's a bit original, then um, then some publishers are going to shy away from that. Well, that's the thing because, you know, when you read it, it's brilliant. But I did imagine how in the world did you pitch it to publishers and ultimately what got you over the line? Because I can totally see them going, oh, that's just really weird. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I mean, I did have an agent and um, – she would say the same thing, right? She would say, I can't think of any comparative titles for this, <laughs> you know, I can't, and um, I can't think of anything that it's like, but that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing for it to be original. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, it turned out to be just the, uh, my, my publisher, Nick Walker, um, an Australian scholarly publishing in Melbourne, he just looked at the manuscript and he just loved it, you know? Mm. And so it was just that old-fashioned thing, you know, of a publisher who just looked at it and just loved it. Because once but, you start reading, it just gets you in, yeah. Yeah, and I, I they've think, just got to start reading. Mm. Yes, and for a book like this, and people who have read it have loved it. Mm. And um, I think for something like this, sometimes you're better off with um, a small publisher because um, then the publisher can look at it and go, "Yes, I want to do this book." Mm. Whereas if they have to get it through like the acquisitions meetings and so forth, and the uh, marketing department has to sit there and you have mm. to try and explain it to them, then it is you know harder. So now that the book is done and it's published. Do you still go sit in the typography section of the State Library of Victoria <laughs> and commune with the books? Oh, look, I'm, <laughs> sometimes I do, or I commune with my own uh, typography books and I uh, <laughs> and um, I read my typography magazines, yeah. And uh, I, I think once... Um, once you have got interested in this world, um, then, <laughs> yes, you, you, it's, uh, there's a... Um, You've become one a, of the, those people. <laughs> yeah, you've become one of those people. It's typomania. Um, you know, there's uh, there's no cure. There's there's a famous uh, typographer 
called Eric Speakerman, who is probably one of the most famous typographers in the world. And he, sa and he says, and I use this at the start of the book, um, most people take the way words look for granted. Once typomania sets in, it becomes quite a different story. And um, that's kind of about, that's what the, the, I suppose one of my aims is that the reader will, will be drawn into this world of typomania mm. a little bit. And we'll, <laughs> we'll start to look at the world a little bit differently. Um, so hopefully they will be entertained. I mean, one thing I wanted to do with this book was to write a book that was entertaining, it was enjoyable, yes. it would give people a bit of a lift, you know, in these gloomy times. Um, but the other thing is I, I would like readers to kind of come away from it, viewing the world a little bit differently and uh, perhaps seeing all these letter forms around them and which they might not have noticed before and thinking, oh, well, actually, what is, what is that doing? What effect is that having on me? Mm. What was the most challenging thing about writing this book? Oh, golly, look, I don't, I, it was just such fun, Valerie, you know, it was, uh, it didn't, it didn't feel, it, it was a challenge, it was kind of an intellectual challenge, I enjoyed, like, working out the architecture of it, but basically I was having so much fun, you know, I just, I just wrote this book kind of to, kind of, to please myself, and um, that gave me a lot of freedom, uh, so I could just kind of, um, you know, write in, try to emulate the writers I really admire, you know, people like David Mitchell and Douglas Adams and Umberto Eco and people like that. And if I wanted to have introduced a kind of crazed medieval monk sort of preaching about the typocalypse, you know, who was obsessed with, with fonts, then I could do that. You know? And if I wanted to introduce a hard-boiled detective like a gumshoe who was an expert on type and so so is a type shoe then I could do that you know, I could just I could just have a whole lot of fun with it and um and, you know and that was that's what I did so it just it didn't really feel like hard work it just felt like I was enjoying myself wow all right so then finally what would be your top three tips to aspiring writers who you know hope to write their own novel one day um I would say write what you want to write Write the thing that you really care about, that you really love, and um, don't try to second guess the market. Um, just write the thing that you really love and you're really fascinated by. Um, that's tip number one. Mm -hmm. um, number two, which is a piece of advice that was given to me by Anthony Yuck, who's a Melbourne writer and Melbourne writing teacher, and uh, he often says, "Whatever, make it more. Whatever your book wants to be, um, make it more. Um, so if it wants to be funny, make it more funny. You know, if it wants, if you want, if you want it to be uh, weird, make it weirder. You know, if you, and so I kind of followed that advice. Uh, what, what, at every stage, kind of my if, oh, my um, characters kind of get a little bit weirder. Like so, I start off with people who are obsessed with type, and then as the book goes on, I introduce people who are even more obsessed, and then I start introducing people who are even more obsessed. So at every stage, kind of cranking it up a little bit more. Um, so that, that's the, uh, two things. And, um, oh, let me see. So a, a third, a third tip. Uh, mm, I don't know. I might have to, uh, think about that. We can go with bit. two. That's yeah. okay. We can go with two. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, look, that, that's just brilliant. And, um, I highly recommend the book to all our listeners. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. 
our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash creative writing. All right, so I hope you enjoyed listening to Nick Gad. I mean, I just think that it is such a clever premise that, you know, good on him for thinking it, let alone committing to writing an entire novel about it. Um, It's a cracker, as I mentioned. So this brings us almost the end of my first ever solo episode. I miss Al terribly, of course, um, my partner in crime, but she will be back next week. In the meantime, please do join our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's free to join and there are people from all walks of life, from all over, but we all have an interest and a love for writing. So make sure you join us. Um, It's a great, great group. Uh, You'll find me in the meantime online uh, at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. But you will find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.